This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is rarer than rare earths, but unfortunately not quite as valuable. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Anir Ban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. How are you? Mate, excellent as always. Ball of muscle. Having a good day. Okay. Good That's start. great. All I was right. almost turning on. <laughs> I was growing, haven't I? Yeah. There you go. Bought my, my pop, you said. Ball of muscle, my ball of muscle. All right, mate, we've got a big podcast coming up today, so let's get into it. We're going to talk about some breaking news in the Fin Review this morning, some changes or some announcements, I should say, on the details of Labor's new taxation policy for investors. So big red lights on this one. We're going to go through the detail of what they've said they're going to do, or at least what's been reported. Uh, the the, uh, the quotes are directly from something that's been leaked from Bill Shorten's office, so we can assume it's going to be said today at some point. So we'll assume as if it is, and then uh, we'll apologise later if it's wrong. Uh, we're going to talk about West Farmers and why the hell they are after Linus. Speaking of rare earths, a rare earth miner... All sorts of trouble this company's been in. The market, the share price has crashed like 90% over the space of five years. West Farmers, the kind of business that was once the owner of Coles and still owns Bunnings, came out and Target now wants to be in the rare earths mining business. We'll talk about that. We will cover some macro. In fact, we'll start with the macro. The US is not as robust as maybe it once was, and we'll see where there's any issues. And, of course, we'll dip into the Motley Fool Foolish Mailbag. Hey, hey. Mate, let's get into it. Let's do it. So let's start with the big macro. And the big macro news this week, no RBA, no GDP figures here, but there were some GDP figures out in the US. Now, I've been challenged and reminded more than once in the last few weeks to explain our terms as we go. So let's do that. GDP is gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. And that's the statistician's addition of everything that happens in, in the economy. All of the widgets that are made, services that are provided, trade that goes in and out, all that kind of good stuff, all wrapped up. It's the total value of everything produced by an economy over a given period of time. So it's the it's the marquee measure. Now people criticize it because it's not doesn't include things like happiness, for example, or satisfaction or well-being or living standards. It also, by the way, GDP is higher when there are natural disasters or terrorism, believe it or not, because if you break something, knock something down, blow something over, you've got to make it back again, right? So <laughs> as it turns out, it replacing the same building, as much as it's actually more cost for no extra benefit still gets called GDP. Awesome. So, little, little tidbit aside, mate, US GDP, getting back to the back to the story, not, not going too much of a tangent too early, uh, in the US was, well, frankly, better than ours, but not as good as it has been. I've seen some alarmist headlines, but let's get through the numbers first. 2.2% growth for the most recent quarter in the US, below Trump's sort of self-appointed or self-declared uh, goal of 3%. I thought it was four. Pretty no, three to four is yeah. Well, it was exactly. Depends. <laughs> Speaking speak of Donald Trump, depends what day it was and what tweet you were looking at. But uh, yes, yeah, so so four is where he wanted to get to. Three was where he said he'd be at. Two point two below all of that. That's a decent deceleration because it was around four percent. So the rate of growth is halving. Still pretty good growth, but not mm-hmm. great. What do you make of a of a U.S. economy growing at two point two percent? Well, I, I think some of the uh, the higher numbers that we saw in past quarters. Mm. Some of that has been aided and abetted by tax cuts and uh, all the money that uh, you know came from offshore to onshore, which was actually technically onshore, but you know got distributed somehow. So that was the, the U.S. has this weird tax system, which isn't replicated anywhere else in the world. Where if your company brings money home from Australia, say to the U.S., they have to pay tax on the cash as it flows across the borders. Yeah, and there was that 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 tax rate was lowered dramatically trying to get a whole lot of companies to bring money home and the hope they would spend it growing and employing people and all that sort of stuff end up being 
give them back in share buybacks and dividends. But, yeah, that's, but, but some, some of that, <laughs> did, you know, like, you know, there, there were more call centers, you know, more companies announcing true, that we're true. going to have new headquarters and all sorts of things like that, right? But, you know, some of that effect, I think, is... So it's in is, past quarters, right? It's in past quarters is... Right. is uh, Dissipating away, <laughs> it's um, over, baby. It's it's over. I mean, but you know, and and then I think the GDP and the profit numbers for some of the companies were also an in, in aggregate. I think for S and P five hundred has has been down. So, yeah, I would say a couple of things. One is that you can't expect those one time. Um, effects to last forever they're one, they're, they're one time for a reason someone's out by definition yes correct uh, number two is i think there's some effect from the ongoing you know the tariff mm-hmm. uh pushes and punches and you know uh riffs that are going on still going on yes. still going on i think you know that, that's having a something uh, overall though i'd say you know 2.2 or 2.4 i mean it's a good number it's still growth i mean you know anyone who's expecting the u.s to grow at four percent mm. Um, I, I don't know how you get there. I mean, it's very hard. It's very hard for a very large it's developed crazy. economy to grow at four percent, right? Oh, here's the thing: it's very, very easy to get to four percent. It's just hard to get to four percent a sustainably and b without causing some massive car crash down the road, right? Yeah, you yeah. can you, you can you can drive a car, you can run a factory at, at excessive speeds for for periods of time. Yeah, all you do is so, kind of sow the seeds of your own destruction. Yeah, so, so, so I'm, I'm overall, uh, it's not worrying, but I think I'm sure people are not happy about numbers going down. <laughs> it's just it's one of those things, right? You know, unemployment numbers. Were like below 5% people are unhappy it's one of those things now I've got to say mate before we get off this topic that some are now throwing the R word around that the US is somehow poised for recession now it's a long way from 2.2% growth to two consecutive quarters of negative Mm. growth but people are still talking about it. Is it, it I mean, I, I guess on one level you say well, it's gone from four to two, from two to zero would be would be kind of you know stay there for a bit. That's recession. Is is that a real worry? Are we are we really concerned about that, or is this kind of just headline writers getting a bit carried away and people looking for for a bit of fifteen minutes of fame in the newspaper? Yeah, I think you know people like to talk about the yield inversion and things like that. You oh, know, don't they love the yield so inversion? So yield inversion, you know, and then people try to make um, statistical correlations between oh this has happened four times in the past and therefore it'll happen this time as well. Uh, tell me how many times it didn't happen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it didn't happen 10 times. So uh, it was, it's hard to predict, basically. Yeah. I mean, or, or if your unemployment numbers are that low, yeah. right? You know, they're below, what, 4%, something right now. Um, you have, you know, stuff happening. They have mm-hmm. other issues there. I mean, I don't know. I don't think it looks... Real, but again, I, I think the big, big um, unknown here is the how the tariff war is going to end, right? right? I mean, if it gets resolved satisfactorily, I think that's good for everyone. Okay. Um, if it doesn't, I mean, if I think the biggest risk is just that that continuing for a long time with it's you know with the break exit happening for a long time or not happening or, or happening, not, happening, or not happening you know <laughs> it, it, it's it's this uncertainty around stuff that's not happening yeah which should happen so that we can all move on and do the stuff we want to do i think is is the problem i think and the, frankly in the long term that uncertainty is always going to be around in some form or other right so you just kind of got to wade through the muck that's that's true but i mean many of these things have been going on for just too long yeah. i mean you know they need to be Sorted. My favourite headline this week, mate, which is almost tangentially relevant because you mentioned it, uh, with with Brexit happening, uh, the headline the AFR on, I want to say it was Wednesday or Thursday this week, was Brexit can stand off. I thought it was kind of a nice, we've had Grexit and Brexit, they're taking it to another level. I think that, that is that is a headline. Some headline writer somewhere has gone, oh, I've got it. And that is, that is pretty gold, I reckon. Yeah, a, a Brexit can stand off is, is pretty good. There's apparently eight Brexit models all being considered. None of which has majority support from anybody in the UK Parliament. So God help all of us. We could be talking about this in five years' time. They just don't want to leave. Well, that's the thing. Right? I mean, they don't want to leave. So why are they it's leaving? The Hotel California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, politics. Uh, Who needs it? Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, 
We've got to talk another bit of macro. This is probably the big one. This is this is the it's not macro in terms of data. It's macro in terms of the impact on our portfolios from a potential change of government. Now, the federal election is supposed to be either May 11 or 18, if you believe the pundits. And frankly, the collapsing of all the different dates and the deadlines and stuff means they're almost certainly going to be either the 11th or the 18th. In fact, the federal government is bringing forward the federal budget, which will be this Tuesday coming. Um, I'm more excited about it than almost anybody else in the Western world, but I do love my budget night. Um, so I will be watching. In fact, I'll actually be appearing, so I'll give some details on that a bit later. Um, not in the budget itself, of course, just in some coverage. Um, the Labor Party have, or are going to apparently, according to an article in the AFR this morning, release details today. So maybe they've been released by the time this goes out or by the time fools you've listened to this podcast giving some more details about the changes to the tax policy they've announced. Now, we're not going to go through the boring details because, frankly, we've done it before and we'll probably do it again. Uh, But to remind people, there's the change in franking credit refunds, there's the change in the negative gearing, allowances for property, and the changes to the capital capital gains tax discount rate, uh, which is going to – the discount for long-term capital gains tax falls from 50% to 25%. That's the one that doesn't get covered much in the general press. We talk a lot about negative gearing, a lot about franking refunds. CGT's kind of slipped through there. Labor have said today, or will say today apparently, uh, Philip Curry is right in the AFR, that the date is going to be January 1. So if that's true, A, if they get elected, B, if they get it past the parliament, neither of those things are guarantees, around eight months from now, you will no longer get a 50% discount for your capital gains tax. You'll no longer be able to buy a property and claim negative gearing. So that's kind of a biggish deal. It's kind of nice of the Labor Party to give us some lead time on this one, Doc. It gets lets people get their affairs in order. I, I, I kind of said to you earlier that kind of, you know, to some degree it's a nice thing to have it. Look, individually, I love the idea. Kind of a bit bizarre when you say to people, hey, this is going to happen in eight months' time, so make sure you uh, structure your affairs so you don't have to pay any tax. It's kind of a little bit of a it's, – look, it's nice. We'll take it. As a policy, I'm not entirely sure it's exactly fair on the rest of the taxpayers, but that's a different question. What do you make of, of the new rules, mate? What do you make of the fact that January 1 is the deadline? Well, I, I hate the fact that there's January January 1 is the deadline. <laughs> 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 so I'll make that note. Um, Specifically so, because you don't want to be on it all, right? Well, exactly. I, I mean, I, I really don't like the CTG rule, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I can get behind the fact that there, there's going to be more tax raised, and therefore maybe it'll be used usefully. Maybe it won't be used usefully. You know, uh, it's I government, know, I'm sure it'll be useful. But I know that I could use that money usefully. So, <laughs> so, so that point aside, I, I think if you're, pr- if you're King Doc of uh, King Doc of Australia, <laughs> you'd find a different way to use the money. Is that what you're telling Absolutely. me? Absolutely. There you go. Uh, uh, here's here's the thing. The the, uh, the my problem with the January one is this. Let, Let's assume that it is, you know, the uh, Labour gets elected. Yep. Then, of course, it needs to get it passed, lower, Correct. upper, Correct. <laughs> or lower house, <laughs> Senate. Correct. Um, what could possibly go wrong? What can possibly go wrong, right? And and it, unless it gets passed, January 1 is not going to happen. Correct. Now, if, and this, I mean, by the, the elections in May, the Parliament will probably sit in June or July. They've got plenty of time to, in theory, get it done. Yeah. But there's no guarantee that the Senate in particular will actually come yeah. to the So that, that's the practical part, right? Yep. Now, let's say, I, I based on the information that potentially is going to be announced, mm-hmm. right? We, we, we are speculating here. Yes. Because, um, I could decide that, okay, I want to take really, you know, I'm a long-term investor. You know, the 25% makes a difference to me. I'm going to invest. I'm going to bring some of my investing investing ahead of time. Right. right. So you want to take advantage of the capital gains tax discount by saying, I want to throw as much cash into the yeah. higher discount yeah. level or rate rather than lower discount. Yeah, and, uh, to, do that, to do that, let's say theoretically, I borrow some money. Okay. Right? Then it just doesn't happen. And I'm really pissed. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Because I've borrowed money which I wouldn't have borrowed if right. it's not going to happen, right? right. So uh, what I hate about these sort of things is like, you know, okay, you announce your policy, yep. then you pass it in parliament. Yes. Once it has been enacted in law, make sure that there is enough room so that, you know, whoever wants to get their orders in a fair or whatever that basically mm-hmm. means, mm-hmm. give them like a three month or six month from that point. That seems better to me. Uh, you know, this sort of thing, you know, where, you know, setting a date and cut off and, and so on and so forth, it's just, it's just a little bit unnecessary. You, you, I know what you're going to argue. You're going to say that, well, you know, <laughs> why even give a date? I mean, maybe that's fair. You know, that it's enacted from the date of... Uh, do you need me here for this? Hmm? Do you need me here for this? No. Okay. <laughs> I'll, so, I'll, I'll grab a coffee. You, you do my side's argument. So, I'll come back. It's just, it, 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 this just riles me. So, no, you, you did right. Uh, so, uh, so I, I just don't like that part of it. But yeah, I can get behind it. Yeah. I, I think, like, I think you're right. I actually agree with you. If you're going to set a date in the future, if you're going to, I think arbitrary actually, I, I wasn't thinking this way until we talked about it this morning before the taping. I think you're dead right. I think saying, saying uh, but arbitrary date when you don't know if you'll get it passed is a bit nuts, right? All, all I would, probably would need to say is that. Once it's passed, we will set a date far enough into the future to make it work. And so if it doesn't get passed, then there's kind of nothing to do and no reason to do anything at all until you know it's getting passed anyway, right? So in theory, that time frame they're allowing is arbitrary based on them hopefully passing, the, hopefully for them, passing the, the, the tax changes, not so much hopefully for us. Uh, but that, you know, to some degree, you're right, that, that makes no sense. I am of the school of thought that says that if you believe that tax should be different, kind of giving people a chance to find a way to get around the tax is kind of counterintuitive and counterproductive, right? If, you, if you're saying, look, people should pay more tax, but in the next three or four months, you can not pay the tax if you're clever or fast or do something about it or in the, in the, in the, in the uh, you have the ability to, to actually do something about it, you can kind of get around the tax. I have a go for the next few months and then we'll worry about it after that. Uh, maybe it's politically appropriate. Maybe it's even nice for us and we'll probably take advantage of it. But uh, it does strike me as a, as a pure policy. It's kind of a little bit of a... This, this, this policy is really, really important, but not so important as we need to do it straight away. We'll give you a chance to try and yeah, structure how, your affairs. That's how you get fence-sitters votes. <laughs> oh, mate, swinging voters. Spare me. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. There was a really strange piece of news out this week. I think it was Monday or Tuesday. So... West Farmers, the conservative Western Australian industrial conglomerate, started as a farmers co-op way back in the day. Latterly owned Coles, it still owns Bunnings, Kmart, Target. Uh, you know, it's it's a staple of a defensive portfolio. All the things that go with that. In the past, it's had some insurance, some chemicals, business, a little bit of coal mining. It's lobbed a bid, a one and a half billion dollar bid, for Linus which if people aren't familiar with Linus, they mine rare earths. They were once called mineral sands, but the market has got hold of it. So mineral sands sounds a bit pedestrian, rare earth sounds much more exciting. Um, a whole lot of chemicals that are very, very abundant. Uh, they mine them, they process them at the moment in Malaysia, which is its own trouble. And the share price of, of Linus has fallen by some 90% over the last few years. West Farm is seeing an opportunity and jumping on Linus or trying to. Linus has said no. Two thoughts, mate. The first thing is, if you're a business who's effectively made a reputation for being a conservative kind of, you know, um, defensive stock, uh, a staple holding for most defensive portfolios, most retiree portfolios around the country, all that kind of good stuff, and then you go and make a play for a speculative rare earths miner, I don't get that, firstly. Secondly, rare earths in general, do we really want some of our industrial conglomerates lobbying bids for miners that have had an absolutely awful track record of mining and producing this stuff? 
Well, for, first of all, I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, I, I really don't like this because it reminds me of my own ownership of Linus shares. Oh, which, confession which, corner. <laughs> which ended horribly. <laughs> as, as you pointed out. I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't going to I wasn't going to go there, mate. I was going to let you get away with that uh, one, but feel free to confess if you need to. Uh, yeah. So, Welcome so, to the confessional. So, 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 you know, I'm, I'm actually a bit aware of what, what happened and what the story was. You know? so, right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, tell, tell, so tell us why, not, not to dwell on your own misfortune too badly, but tell us why Linus is in such a pickle and then try and explain to me if you can why West Farm is a Around. Yeah, so I think part of the part of the problem was that they have a mine in Australia, yes. and then they do the refining in Malaysia, as you pointed out, right? And the Malaysian government has to issue them what's called some sort of operating license, right? right? And then the waste that comes out, the, the main issue is around the waste. So the two issues, there's one issue is around the safety of the mm-hmm. of the processing, and you know maybe you know th- their claim at some points has been that it re- it releases radioactive uh, material, you know. I'm sure that's so, fine. <laughs> and 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 then and the waste, you know what you do with it. And Linus at some point has said that you can use the waste to even build roads, right? Oh, no, radioactive roads would be awesome, right? <laughs> and you've got so, power cars, there's some sort of transmission so, process going so, on there. So so there's been various points at which, you know, there've been temporary license, right. permanent license, license being taken away, different governments coming at play and playing with the you know, there's there's all sorts of yeah. issues around that. It, it took Linus a long, long time to actually get to producing something right. first and then doing so profitably. I think they, they have actually been profitable maybe more recently. Okay. So things might have to When the Malaysian out. government lets them actually produce. Uh, when the government, Malaysian, <laughs> and the Malaysian government could at any time say that, you know, you need to take this waste back to Australia, which the Australian government might say, we don't want the waste back in Australia. So <laughs> generously, if I'm, if I'm being very, very generous, I would say Linus is shipping this stuff to Malaysia because it's a low cost opportunity and they can put do it at scale in Malaysia. If I could be less generous and, and talk entirely hypothetically, are they doing it just because the Australian government won't let them? Are they trying to find a, a close-by jurisdiction who'll let them kind of pollute and do what they need to do without kind of having too much oversight? Yeah, well, allegedly. I mean, uh, yeah, allegedly. Or it could be, you know, a combination of both, right? right. I mean, here the, the the licensing requirements and the regulations and the environmental checks are going to take a long, long time to actually get done there. Maybe Man. you can get it done quickly. But but uh, Linus, for the time I followed it, was never a well-run business. Right. I think the new CEO that they've got has done actually a very good job of turning around a business which was really, really bad. Bad. Okay. Um, um, That's is good it? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily a good sign. It, was, it went from being <laughs> <laughs> it, it went from being a very bad business to being <laughs> a below Hustle, average business. Right. <laughs> a below average business. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, I, I, I'm, and as you said, rare, rare earth is not uh, very rare. And there's another <laughs> dynamic here. Majority of the of the non. Uh, what is called non-China production right. happens here and some in the US. Right. Okay. Or is from US and China. Because China's got uh, most of the market for rare earths, right? Exactly. So they said the price. You know, they could produce a lot more. The price goes down, and, and then you become unprofitable, right? Uh, so, so there's all these dynamics. So it's not really clear to me why, as you said, a conservative conglomerate, which owns things like Bunnings and Kmart, and previously used to own Coles, would actually do this. Uh, maybe they know something that I don't know. <laughs> quite likely, uh, or maybe not. <laughs> Fair to say, the share price was basically before this offer was lobbed effectively at a, I want to say a five-year low. No, not quite. Maybe a three-year low. Um, it, it hasn't been pretty, right? Not even that, actually. The share price has been a lot, a lot lower. It's been 50 cents. So, look, at, at a dollar fifty, it was probably at a 12-month low. Doing okay, uh, bumping along the bottom, as you say, had improved meaningfully from those bad, bad old days. But this was a $20 stock once, a $27 stock once upon a time. So, yep. it lost 90% of its value. I have to believe that West Farmers is just simply looking at this and going, hey, the market hates it. If you're a kind of slightly contrarian investor, 
you can lob a billion and a half dollars at this thing over time to your point if it's being decently run yeah it should be worth more to west farmers than the market's currently valuing it i have to believe it's almost a I can't imagine they desperately want to be in the wear earth business. I think it's got to be a – when they looked around and said, hey, we can put a billion and a half dollars cash to work over here. We can buy a business that is underpriced because the market kind of just doesn't trust it anymore. If we think we can do our due diligence and find a way to get through that kind of uncertainty, yeah. there's a good deal on the offering. Yeah, potentially. I mean, again, you know, if they believe they can you know, turn it around further, sure. You're not tempted to buy shares again? No. <laughs> <laughs> that ship has sailed. Shall we move on? Yeah, that's my one. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, we're going to dip into the Fool Mailbag, our favourite segment, as I've said before. Hopefully a segment that our listeners also enjoy because we get plenty of questions from our listeners. So we're going to go through a couple today, maybe three if we get some time. Uh, we'll do them as quickly as we can get away with without skipping too much on the detail. Mate, the first one comes from Henry. Now, I've been on a, a bit of a rant, as I, as I mentioned, I think last week or the week before, about people getting their mortgage rates down. Uh, if your mortgage rate doesn't start with a three for an occupier, you are getting ripped off by your bank. And I won't, I won't rant. I'm going to stay calm and collect it and just, you know, level. Let's keep it calm. Okay. So I, you, you can get as low as 3.59% if you're an owner-occupier with a decent uh, slab of equity, um, certainly from a couple of banks, just for those who care. Uh, the three or four you can get them from that I know of are Ubank, HSBC, Sydney Credit Union, or SCU, and IMB. The old building site, I think, is now officially a bank. Um, so if you are paying more than 3.59, please do us a favor, do yourselves a favor, more to the point, and go and get a better rate. Now, Henry uh, says, Hi, Scott, I've got a question. If I owe 150 grand on a mortgage with a rate of 4.08%, is it still worthwhile looking around for a better rate for this smallish amount? And so I just thought we'd talk to that a little bit because it kind of feels like, well, it's a small amount and do I really bother and all that kind of good stuff? The question is a good one. So if you're thinking about changing your loan, you think, well, am I going to save a little bit or have I only got a little bit of a mortgage? Do I really, is it really worth the hassle? Firstly, we don't know for sure what your exit fees, what your valuation fees are, whether you've got to take out Linda's mortgage insurance. There's a whole lot of reasons why it may not make sense and we can't talk to Henry's question directly. What we can say is that, Henry, it depends on how much interest you're likely to pay on that amount over time. Now, if you've got a $150,000 mortgage and you just take 30 years to pay it off, which is possible, you could refinance and do that, um, you're going to still pay a good six-figure slug in interest over that period of time. And so, frankly, yes, absolutely. If you could if you could drop that number by, I don't know, pick a number, you can drop 10 grand off that or you know, five grand off that, three grand off that. It's still well and truly worth you while making a change. So yes, it's absolutely worth doing it if it's over a long period of time. If you're going to pay it off over you know, four or five years by using an offset account or doing something else. And the interest bill is going to be relatively small. I mean, you know, 4% on 150 grand to six grand a year. Do that for three years, it's 18 grand. Maybe you can save a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand bucks if you're really, really lucky. So again, we don't know the specifics, but you know, the, the less you, the less interest you're going to pay, the less value there is in changing. So uh, again, use your circumstances. Basically, use an online calculator. Grab an online calculator. Find out how, much, how long you're likely to pay that off over, what the interest is going to be. Put a different interest rate in. There's plenty out there. If I find a good one, I'll tweet it out on our Twitter account, which I'll give you details of in a second. Uh, and you can find a way to save a bit of cash. Now, the other thing I would say, Henry, is you don't necessarily even need to change. Just call your bank. And so if you can just simply call the bank and say, hey, I'm paying 4.08. I know out there is 3.59. They might say to you, all right, Henry, fine. I'll give you 3.9 or 3.8. Anything you can save is still well and truly worthwhile. If you do it without even changing banks, literally just calling them up, say, hey, can you charge me less, please? And say, yeah, sure. There's absolutely no downside to doing it. So whether I'd go to the hassle of changing banks, depending on how much interest you're going to pay over the next three, five, 10, 20 years, but I would absolutely always, always, always call your bank, 
Tom, there's a better rate out often. I mean, there's basically half a percentage point now between 4.08 and the 3.59 of the others. Go and tell them, say, hey, look, I can get 3.59 over here. What can you do for me? Uh, even if it's not worth changing banks, it's definitely worth a phone call. And I am pretty sure most people who are paying more than 4% to make a phone call will save at least something on their loan. Modly for money. Next question comes from John. John asks a really good question, Doc. So he says, I thoroughly enjoying the podcast as always. So John knows what. Great guy. That's why we're answering this question. Well done, John. <laughs> we're big fans of John. Um, in one of your recent shows, Scott briefly said it was a topic. Uh, the topic of bank hybrids was for another day, but did indicate he had a view on them. Well, Scott, today's your day, mate. Can you please provide your thoughts on the hybrids being offered by the likes of NAB and CBA? Many advisors are using these as a means of providing above average fixed interest returns in portfolios. Some convert to stock and or you have the opportunity at maturity to keep the A-rated ones. Are there any concerns or risks? Kinds of regards, John. Doc, do you have any thoughts on bank hybrids? Firstly, tell me what bank hybrids are, if you would. So bank hybrids are basically interest-paying instruments which... Uh, sit essentially above equity but below debt. Right. Uh, so when you say above and below, how, how does that how does that work out? Uh, so above equity in the sense that you know I think if dividends have to be paid mm-hmm. or interest is being paid, then they have priority over Correct. the equity holders but below the debt holders. Correct. Right. So I think that's that's the difference. Um, uh, I I don't know. Like I mean, with bank hybrids, I haven't looked at them that much. It's see, with with bank hybrids, you're not going to get any capital gains, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not getting the capital gains. You're getting the basically the interest that's being paid. You unless possibly can sell these on the secondary market, yeah. And they, the price price can fluctuate, so it's possible to get capital gains, but you're not getting anything meaningful capital yeah. gains. You certainly wouldn't be expecting to. Yeah, and and, uh, and and maybe in some cases they convert to stock, in which case mm-hmm. that you can f- participate in the stock yep. uh, gain. Um, I don't know. I, I don't really have a view, specific view. I mean, again, depends on what interest they're paying. Um, what is the rate you're making on it? I mean, is, does that meet your goal and so on? Mm. It's, it's certainly something that I actually don't look at that closely. Yeah, no, I don't either, mate. I, John, great question. I've I've long despised bank hybrids. Um, I, Doc talked about the fact that there's, you know, they sit below debt and above equity. So what happens when a company, if a company gets in financial stress, uh, then there's an order under legislation under which the particular parties, the, the, the other side of the transaction, if you like, to banks or any company gets paid. And so first comes secure. So let, let's say a bank a company goes broke. Uh, the first people who get paid with, with any assets that are left, the administrator or the liquidator comes in and, and liquidates the company. They get some proceeds from that liquidation and they pay people in a particular order. The first people to get paid are people with what they call secured debt. And that's where you have the uh, basically a mortgage over the assets of a particular organization. So you might lend money, a bank might lend money to uh, Doc's Widget Factory, and they have a mortgage over the factory itself, the actual building and land. And so they get that building and land back before anything else happens. Next comes unsecured debt. So if I've, if I've given Doc a 10 grand overdraft, um, then then I get, if there's any money left over after the secured debtors get paid, I get the 10 grand back from the overdraft that he's drawn. Then comes anything left for shareholders, if at all there's anything left. And that's why often when there's wind-ups, shareholders get a cent in the dollar or a couple of cents in the dollar because there's just simply not much asset value left of a company that goes broke once the debtors have been paid. And in this case, as Doc mentioned, hybrids do sit under debt but before equity. So there is some reassurance, if you like, that you're more likely than equity holders and shareholders to get paid. So that's something in its favor. The other thing, as John mentions, is there's a, there's a higher than average interest rate or, or, or a payment rate, payout rate, coupon rate, call it what you want. Um, so that's kind of better than cash in the bank usually. Um, but to some degree, they kind of have the worst of both worlds, right? They're not as secure as cash in the bank. 
and you don't get the capital gains of equity. So it's kind of one of those things where if you want security and safety, well, you're probably better off with cash. And if you want equity-like returns, you're probably better off with shares, particularly if those those shares are quality shares or a diversified portfolio, even an index fund, for example, is probably going to give you a better overall total return than, than money in, in bank hybrids. The last thing, or maybe second last thing I'll say, is bank hybrids are corp- what they call corporate notes. This is the bank's way of funding themselves. This is not a product they're offering out of the goodness of their heart. They are simply saying, look, if I had, it's it's too expensive to go and get money from depositors because it's simply not out there, uh, and I can't get the right terms. Like this is effectively locked in capital. I know what the repayment rate's going to be. On the flip side, I can't raise more equity because it costs too much, and the other equity holders will be diluted. So I'm going to try and create a product that's, in, frankly, you know, it's like everything. If you if you're buying from Kerry Packer, you don't want to be doing that because he's getting a better deal than you are. The bank hybrids are structured so the banks make a fortune, right? They're not doing it for your. <laughs> For your best interest, they're not trying to help you out. They are trying to say how much, what's the lowest possible interest rate I can give on a bank hybrid that gets the money I want and minimizes the amount of money I have to pay. And if you're the other side of that transaction, then guess what? You're the one buying the the, the product that the bank knows they can sell to you for the lowest possible return for you. Uh, so look, I think you know hybrids are worse. Generally speaking, they're more more they're less volatile, but they're worse overall total return than shares, and they're not as safe as cash in the bank. It's cash in the bank's government guaranteed. So even though it's the same entity, you'll get the money back if the, something happens to the bank. Uh, if it's cash in the bank, if it's a, de- a secure deposit, you won't necessarily if it's a hybrid. So I reckon if you're going to go hybrid, you might as well go shares and make sure you're diversified. If you want safety, go cash in the bank. I think hybrid's kind of the worst of both worlds, frankly. Modly for money. We're going to go to a question I got from West Coast 76 on Twitter. I have no more information about that. So West Coast, I, I assume you're an Eagles fan. Um or maybe you're not. Maybe you're uh, the West Coast of America. Maybe you're in California or something. But I'll assume you're an Eagles fan. And uh, hopefully, uh, Swannies will show you a uh, clean pair of heels this season. Um, although, after saying that, West Coast then says, love the podcast. So I feel a little bit bad. Love the podcast. I've listened for two years and recently signed up for Dividend Investor. Excellent. Thank you. As I am a conservative investor by nature. Nothing wrong with that. My question is, I bought Sol Pattinson shares a year ago and have lived the rise from 18 to 30 or so recently, plus dividends. That's pretty good for a conservative investor. Almost doubled your money, plus some, plus some dividends. Sounds awesome. That's, that's growth stock stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say, I will de- declare up front, I'm a shareholder of Sol Pats. Um, I hear some people say, sell portions of my gains and reinvest elsewhere. But others say, if you believe in the company, just hold the position. What are your thoughts on the two theories? Now, Doc, you and I are slightly different investors, not as different as maybe mm. we sometimes like to pretend, although you have a, a higher risk tolerance and, and frankly, a, a better knowledge of some of the specialty areas like tech than I do. But generally speaking, let's, so let's talk about Solpats particularly, it's relevant. If you've, if you've gained, you've gone from 18 to 30 in a year, plus some mm. dividends, you've done very, very well. What do you do, mate? Do you sell? Do you, do you take profits as, they, as, the, as the jargon goes? Or do you hold the shares if you believe in the company and let it do its thing? I, 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 I definitely don't sell my winners. Um, okay. As long as I believe in what they're doing. I mean, you know, uh, specifically to Soul Pats, right? I mean, they have got a 100-year history, delivered market-beating returns over those 100 years. Mm-hmm. I think increased dividend every year or something like that. Something, something. It's this, I want to say it's one of only two companies to have consistently paid a dividend and maybe increased it every year. I can't remember. But yeah. in any case, so, it's I been mean, very, very strong. Th- there's some very, very strong. I mean, again, this is the past. Whether it's going to continue in the future, nobody knows. But if you believed in the future and you believe in their strategy and you you believe that it's a great conglomerate. I mean, why would you sell it? That's um, well, you sell it because maybe the shares dropped to twenty five, and you go, "Oh man, I could have sold at thirty. Now it's twenty five. I should take some money off." I knew I should have listened to that bloke on the podcast. I should have sold. Well, or what if it goes to fifty? 
You know, that's, well, that's the flip side. That's okay. But that, that, I've done well if it goes to 50. It's your fault if it goes to 25, right? So I think <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, a couple of things. Yeah. Well, one, one thing is that, you know, when, when the, the, you don't get the benefits of compounding if, yeah. you, if you cut your gains, right? So I think, and, and compounding is really, really powerful, right? I mean, you can go from like, you know, 10 to 20, 20 to maybe 40. That's a, you know, double. 40 to 80 is another double, right? Right. But then you've gone from 10 to 80. That's 8x. Eight times your money. So mm-hmm. that's number one. So I, I think the That's only- important, right? So, so double three times. It's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not 10 plus 10 plus 10. No. It's 10, 20, 40, yeah. 80, right? Yeah. So the, the value of that last double- is huge. Is where the money's all made. It's huge. You know, yeah. Yeah, as, as people would say, Warren Buffett, I think, made 90% of his money in the last, yeah. what, 40 it's years not, or something like, like 90, that. 99% of his cash after age 50. Yeah. Something stupidly so, large. I, I, right. And he's one, of, he's one of the wealthiest people. I mean, it basically, basically says that, you know, I'm, uh, you know, the only We've hope still got of, a chance. <laughs> yeah. The only hope of making money is basically by the time you're dead. <laughs> so, so but, 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 I mean, that's the thing. Right? If somebody is, you know, is investing and the company's doing well, that's, that's number one. Yep. Not, the only, co- you know, criteria consideration might be, and maybe that's not that applicable to, to Soul Path because it's more of a conglomerate, mm. is, if something becomes too big of your portfolio right. and it makes you uncomfortable that you can't really, you know, you say, oh, it's too large, you know, then, you know that, that, and if it moves a little bit, it causes, you know, too much gyration in your portfolio, which makes you uncomfortable, unhappy, yep. then, you know, sell some, right? That's, that's the only uh, consideration. But, you know, that consideration is not important if you're regularly adding money to your portfolio. If you're adding regularly mm-hmm. money to your portfolio, then what I tend to do, and this is sort of my model, is that I don't add... Um, if I have a large position, I just don't add money to that large position. I buy okay. something else. Okay. And and that's so you're kind of, of lowering the lowering its share of the portfolio by adding money elsewhere rather elsewhere. than selling shares. Yeah. And it's not that I don't like that thing. It's just that you know maybe at, at a certain level or certain size, I yep. just feel that you know it causes too much gyration and it's you know makes me uncomfortable. Gives me you know a heartburn. I need to you know go, then go buy some medicine to be, take care of my heartburn. <laughs> so you must want to share something else instead. Let's so, so put it in. You know, just review. <laughs> so I'm just being cheap there. So I, I, I just don't like the heartburn. So that that's that. So uh, yeah, I, I that's yeah. yeah. If you want to kill something in your portfolio, it's really itching to kill something. It's always good to kill. You know, as they say, you want to pluck the weeds off and right. you let your you know let your flowers bloom. Yeah. So what do you what are your weeds and pull you? Uh, what are your flowers yeah, and pull your weeds? Yeah, I just changed that. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna add slightly to that to to say that please. Um, Here's the thing. I'm not going to criticize anyone who looks at their portfolio, as you said, Doc, and kind of just can't sleep, feels uncomfortable, worries. Uh, that's that's natural human emotion, right? The most important thing is any investor you can learn is to actually learn to live with volatility. It's bloody hard, right? We still mm. go through the same emotional roller coasters, hopefully less less extreme because we've done this for a few years. Um, but the idea of kind of, you know, the fact that your portfolio can go up by 20%, down by 20%, for some people with, you know, six, seven-figure portfolios, I mean, that's, that's you know, a space of well, the last three months of last year, a lot of people had their portfolios fall by the value of a couple of new cars. Right now, that, that's a that's a pretty meaningful emotional toll to try and manage and deal with. So you think about that happening, that that kind of that, that's going to hurt. And so we're not saying it won't hurt. We're saying if you can learn to deal with that volatility, that's going to be super super useful for you as an investor because it'll mean you don't feel like you need to do something when the when the best option is to do nothing. So the first thing is try desperately to just tell yourself to to, to before it happens. By the way, not at the time. You know, instill internalize the fact. That this will it will be volatile, right? Solpats may fall from thirty to twenty before it goes to forty. Um, you just have to know that's possible. Now, if it does go from thirty to twenty to forty, you'll be glad you held on. And so, 
just just be mindful that volatility isn't the be on end all. It's the, you know the old surfing analogy, right? Ride the wave, don't don't get out of the water because there are waves. Um, so that's that's the first thing. Second thing I would say is try and desperately to ignore the past. The fact it's gone from eighteen to thirty is irrelevant. Or should be irrelevant to you. Solpats, they're not thirty bucks now. Let's say they're thirty dollars today. Um, whether you've gone from eighteen to thirty or forty to thirty, the only question is what happens next. And neither of those two two directions will tell you what's going to happen next, right? So if Solpats had been twenty eighteen dollars and gone up to thirty, well, okay, they've almost doubled. Does that mean they're going to keep going up? I don't know. If they've gone from forty to thirty, does that mean they're going to keep falling? I don't know. And the other thing is neither does anybody else. So don't listen to anyone who tells you they know where share prices are going. They don't. They're either lying to you or they're lying to themselves or possibly both. Um, all you need to do is say, do I think 30 bucks is a fair price to pay or to own, to hold for Sol Pats? If $30 is a decent price for Sol Pats and it has a bright future as a result, then great. Hold the shares. Keep doing your thing. If you think, well, I only thought they were worth 20 now they're 30 bucks. They're obviously overvalued by a long way. I'm mad to keep holding them. By all means, sell. Or as Doc said, if it's a large enough position in your portfolio, you get uncomfortable, then of course, sell then too. But generally speaking, no, I, you know, I think taking profits is, is generally speaking... It's hard, right? Because if you t- t- keep taking 10, 20, 30% off the table, you've got to reinvest that money. You got, first, you've got to pay tax, right? So you end up with your 10% falls to 5%. Pick a, pick a number. Then you've got to reinvest that money, so pay brokerage. And then you've got to hope that new stock goes up more than the one you just sold. There are so many different complex parts of that, so many what-ifs that kind of add together that really give you a very, very difficult path to trying to maximize money over time. As Doc said, if, if Solpats is, look... Sopats was was six, and then it was twelve, and then it was eighteen, and then it was twenty, and then it was thirty. Over that time, there's come back a lot. I'm sure there are many, many times during that period where you've lost money, you've been down. Uh, but over time, if you if you'd said, well, it was six bucks, now it's gone to twelve, should I sell? In hindsight, the answer is obviously no. God no. You know, hold on to your shares because I'll go to thirty. But at the time, someone said, and we didn't have this podcast at that point, but they might have said to us, hey, Sopats gone from six to twelve. What do I do? I've made some money. Should I take money off the table? If it was Solpats and you felt good about the company, you felt confident, Doc's already given the, the kind of run-through of the business owned by the Milner family in large chunks, um, still run the same way, great market beating performance over over 1, 3, 5, 10, and 15 years or something ridiculous. As I said, I do own shares, so take that into account. Um, you know, would, would it have been smart to take profits at 12? Absolutely not. So we don't know what's going to happen next to the share price. Maybe it never gets to 30 ever, ever again. It's very unlikely that it doesn't, by the way. So if you still like the company, if you're happy with the size of the portfolio, and frankly, unless there's a desperate reason to sell, I would agree with Doc. Keep your winners and pull out your, what's the losers? I'll say pull out the ones that are underperforming as companies, not just as share prices. Modly for money. All right, we're going to finish off with one last question from Roy. We've got a couple of minutes. Will, our producer, is waving his hands friendly. Stop, stop, stop. And I'm saying, ah, I, 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 I run the podcast, dude. No, I'm kidding. Um, he's going to hit me afterwards. Um, mate, we'll do one one quick last one. And he could just cut the feed. You he know? could. He could. Just all of a sudden go silent. Yeah, he's saying just, he could. He, he could. could. Yeah, yeah, he would too. Um, <laughs> Good, good member reporter. Uh, the, uh, the last question is from Rory, mate. I'll just give you some quick thoughts. It was a really kind of cool question. We won't spend a whole lot of time on it because most of our listeners can't or won't invest in it, but it's an interesting kind of idea. Rory said, uh, would love to hear your thoughts. Well, firstly, he doesn't say he loves the podcast, so maybe I should just not answer his question. I will just assume he loves it. Okay, you sure? Yeah. Safe? Yeah. All right. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the upcoming Lyft and Uber IPOs. Personally, I don't get why you'd invest in businesses that will be loss making for at least the next decade or more. This is a low. Doc does love Tesla, <laughs> which I thought was kind of kind. All right. So uh, let's let's leave the Tesla, Tesla sledge on the side for a second. Uber and Lyft. Firstly, mate, let's let's actually let's go to the second half of the question first. You reckon it's going to lose money for the next decade or more? I think it's not an unreasonable speculation. Why would you buy shares in a company that are going to lose money for the next three, five, seven, ten years? 
Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll answer that theoretically. If a company might be losing money, right? But it depends on why it's losing money, right? It, if it is losing money to build market share and it yep. has a business model that essentially is very cash generative by definition, mm-hmm. then that might be okay. It okay. might be okay because once you establish dominance, and let's say in this case, you know, if you, if you get the world's all the drivers and all the cars, they all want to be on uh, on Lyft, yep. right? And you establish dominance with your customers and your drivers, then you have got this huge fleet, huge fleet of customers. And then after you have won the mm-hmm. battle or you establish the dominance, you can basically keep making money every day, every day, forever, or at least in theory for a long, long time. That sounds like the Amazon model to me. They spent 20 years losing money trying to build a, yeah. a market. Now they're going to slowly... Eek out the, the profits that come with it. Exactly. So th- this is a model that has been used in the past. You know, most software companies do this. Right. Um, you know, the okay. I haven't looked at what they call the S one, which is the IPO document okay. of Lyft, and I actually haven't even read what any, we would call a prospectus here, which is a prospectus. Yeah. Yep. And I haven't even read a blog or someone who has nicely summarized it yet. <laughs> so, so I am a bit uninformed. But it's something that I think is very interesting because, you know, this uh, sort of, you know, uh, the new generation taxi, so to say, is, is interesting. And Uber is going to, as he said, IPO soon after. What is scary, though, that this company has been losing billions and billions of dollars every year and is losing more. And I think somebody pointed out that, you know, this... Uh, um, the losses that this company is making comes pretty close to another company called Snap, which if yeah, people yeah, are familiar yeah. with, like Snapchat is basically an app, uh, kind of like Facebook, kind of like Twitter, but where you send snaps. Um, <laughs> um, so if there is no clear path to profitability, that is a problem. Also, the thing is that um, you know Uber is a, has the biggest share of the market, so that's a problem. Mm. There are also lots of unknowns here. What would happen if you have... Um, self-driving autonomous fleets come into the play right if autonomous fleets come into the play it depends on how the autonomous fleets come into play and Mm -hmm. then who are the you know so it's not really certain that these guys are going to be able to so-called leverage the network effects So, without looking into the details, this is, you know, it looks uh, like a scary proposition to me. So, are you, are you, are you net negative on, on these kind of carpooling businesses because you think autonomy is going to kind of take over and leave them in the dust? You know, well, what I think right now is that I don't know how autonomy... So, it depends, right? If, if autonomy is a general thing, which uh, some companies selling the autonomous solution, and these guys buy the autonomous solution, they can have their own fleet, they don't mm. need a fleet, so they can have a combination of fleets, of so fleets of drivers and fleets of autonomous vehicles, and that works. Right, okay. But if, what if autonomy is owned, say, let's, let's assume the Waymo, which is a Google company, yes. wins autonomy, yes. and it decides that it is going to do <laughs> everything. So Waymo b- builds its own fleet, launches its own yeah. uh, carpooling app, which isn't really a carpooling app because it's autonomous, but launches its own ride, sh- ride I don't know, I don't know what to call it, something <laughs> ride sharing. Yeah. It launches its own app to, to get me from point yeah. A to point B. Yeah, so it, it does the Waymo Lyft right. <laughs> version. And in theory, that's a whole lot cheaper than Uber and exactly. Lyft because you've got to pay for the car, but you don't have to pay for the driver. Right. So in that version of the world, maybe Waymo ends up doing rides for half the price of Lyft or Uber exactly. and those two businesses disappear or, yeah. or well, you have a hard time right I mean right, it becomes right, right. you know your losses will continue <laughs> forever so it's I think there's a lot of unknowns here that you know it's not I don't think it's a slam dunk in the, in the sense I think I think yeah this is uh, and again, I haven't read the S one. I mean, I w- I wanted to read the S one largely because I think it will it will uh, clear some views on what yeah, what is going on in that industry. Yep. It's really good to read these S ones because it tells you okay what is happening in that kind of industry. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, right now I'm a very cautious. I take a cautious view of that. So if you're offered shares in the IPO, what right now? What would you say? 
uh, right, right now, I wouldn't take it. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's without reading the S1. And, 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 and another thing to remind, uh, remember is that, you know, you might not get any shares in the IPO. <laughs> exactly. And then the company will IPO and the shares might go up on the first day, maybe by 50%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you're buying at 50% above, which is which I heard that they're going to be IPOing at, what, $70 a piece or something like that, right, at, right. at like a $25 billion valuation, right. which would be a $35 billion US valuation by the time you buy the shares. Oof. Got, got to believe that it's going to do something from there, right? By the same token, mate, I was the idiot who said that Facebook was expensive at, what, 20 bucks when it listed or something, so I'm, I'm probably not the right person to talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's $165 now, so I, I'll, uh, yeah, you know, IPOs are funny. So day one stag profits, as you say, mate, they are a way for people to get out if they're already in and, and make a nice little bit of money up front. Uh, and sometimes that's the highest price shares ever get to, a la Meyer, as many people will remember from Australia. On the other hand, the Googles and the Facebooks have gone on to do... Uh, many multiples of the IPO price. So. Yeah. We'll the, the, I'll make one quick comment about IPOs. A lot of companies that are making IPOs these days, I think the, the number one rationale for doing IPOs is actually not to give people, in, it's not to give the large investors a way to exit. Right. It's actually to give their their engineers and other employees in a liquid market to actually cash shares. Makes sense. That's the, the biggest driver. That's why a lot of, lot of these IPOs have been happening and that's right. the biggest driver. Because right? people are given options when they first start with a company. They kind yeah. of work for they work for not much with the hope that maybe they'll get some big pay, payday. Yeah. This is the payday arriving for those people. Yeah, right? or, or even just regular pay, right? Right. Good point. That was pretty good, mate. That's great. Should we finish it up? I think so. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, that does wrap us up for this week's Motley Fool Money. We still have plenty more in the mailbag for the record, so next week, tune in. If you haven't answered your question, please listen in. We will almost certainly get to it. And if you do have a question, please throw it at us. As always, I will share the Twitter, Facebook, and email handles with you, so grab a pen, or if you're very good, commit it to memory, or even grab one of those newfangled sort of hand computing phony devices, uh, and, and you can type it straight in. So go to Twitter. Log on, open an account. It's fine. I have no shares on Twitter, by the way, but it's a really cool platform to engage with each other and get get your own kind of tailored news feed. We're at the Motley Fool AU. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti, and I'm at TMF Scott P. Flick us a question. Ask us a com- ask a question. Flick us a comment, or just you know generally engage because it's kind of fun. Uh, you can get us on Facebook. We are the Motley Fool Australia on Facebook. Look it up. It's easy to find. Throw us a question there. Leave us a comment, or if you need to, use the old-fashioned way or the New old-fashioned way. No snail mail, please. <laughs> the, the new old-fashioned way, you can email us at info at fool.com.au and our wonderful member services, Fools, will pass the questions through to us and we'll try and answer it on this podcast. It is always fun. Always to, if you've got a view on the podcast, things you like, things you don't like, things you want more of or less of, let us know. We, we work on what, the, what we assume is what our members and our listeners are enjoying. Uh, if you are enjoying something in particular, you want more of it, please let us know. If there's stuff that just drives you mad, clearly it won't be me talking because I'm very entertaining and interesting and handsome and attractive and funny but if you know if there's something doctor doing you don't like let him know um, <laughs> but yeah please do give us some feedback because we really you know this is this is as we say every time this is your podcast we do it for the love of it we do it because we hope that we're adding some value for you uh, but frankly if we're wasting our time and getting it wrong then we'd love to know now don't forget you can also subscribe to this podcast through itunes or your favorite android podcast app doc i'm going to rewrite this for next week i think i've done this same close for about well, we have over 100 episodes now, so probably, it's probably worth it. Just don't, you know, in the it's order. Worth the change, isn't it's it? worth a change, but keep the order the same. You know, the oh, iTunes okay. comes first. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Motley for Money Podcast through your favorite Android podcast app or something else <laughs> if you have one. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Uh, leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. It tells the podcast apps that there's people engaging with the podcast, and that helps us rise up the ratings and helps other people find it as well. You can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. This is my favorite part of the close. By going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. Triple M. 
That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.